Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Critical Childhood and Youth Studies Collective new podcast episode. I am Serhan Demiral from Istanbul, Turkey, and today I'm here with Spiros Spiru from European University Cyprus one more time. Welcome, Spiros. Thanks for um, being here, being with me here. Thank you, sir. The last time we met for a previous episode called There is no Planet B, we discussed climate change and children's becoming uh, political subjects in the face of uncertainty of this age. First of all, I would like to remind our listeners what uh, Sipiros indicated about different childhood experiences. Then I will try to open, um, open our discussion regarding several points such as unequal uh, access to participation, capabilities to express oneself, opportunities and challenges to produce knowledge of children themselves. Um, and eventually the limits of children's voices, according to Sipiros, were mentioned in one of his papers. And Sipiros, as you indicated, you have uh, prepared your report about climate change and youth activism in Cyprus regarding mostly private school ch children before. And my question is like, what do you think about how socioeconomic status or social class background of children affects their access to participation? What can we say about children's access to their rights and participation according to where they live, which country they were born? Those um, kind of binaries like global south and north or living in a developed country or undeveloped country, those kind of binaries still matter as much or not? Okay, um, again, thank you, Saran, for this uh, kind invitation. I'm happy to be here and discuss with you this time a kind of a different topic, uh, methods. Um, um, uh, these are all good questions um, that you raise. Um, and, and of course, they touch on some of the key issues um, related to children's um, participation uh, in general, we could say, but, but certainly children's uh, participation in research uh, as well. Now, um, the notion of participation um, um, is such a wide and open concept that it could mean different things to different people. Um, it, it does mean different things across different uh, societies and, and cultures. And so it is quite easy to label something as participatory uh, or not, uh, based on the assumption one makes about um, participation. Of course, this is a, a huge discussion and we could not even begin to open it uh, up here, but I think um, it's probably useful to at least entertain the notion that participation is not one thing, and therefore we should be aware when using it um, that it can carry diverse uh, meanings. So this might mean that we very easily celebrate participation, and sometimes we do this um, unproblematically, or, or the opposite, we lament its absence uh, when in fact um, things can be quite more um, complicated. So um, if we take participation decision-making as one type of participation, then we are addressing directly the need for children to participate like other human beings um, in all those um, processes where decisions that affect their lives are made uh, in the family, for instance, um, at school, um, in politics, uh, and so on. But if we take 
participation to mean something broader, it could mean that children are participating in an activity. Um, for instance, children are participating in a protest like we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, when we talk about participation, there is a clear goal in mind. We aim to, uh, I don't know, get ch children's perspectives on such and such issue. But at other times, it might refer mainly to the process of um, participating, which is seen um, in itself as important because it is not just the outcome that we are interested in, but also um, the opportunity for children to be part of a process, to learn, oh. to act, to express <clears throat> themselves, and so on. Now, um, to go back to your question, I had to kind of prepare the ground for this because I think it's important. Um, do children from uh, diverse backgrounds, for instance, have an equal opportunity to, to participate? And um, you mentioned um, socioeconomic uh, background. I think you mentioned geographic location. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, so that could mean, for instance, living in an urban versus a rural area, or it could mean living in um, X country versus Y country which of course also necessarily brings up questions of cultural difference. Um, you mentioned um, the binary between the global mm -hmm. South and the global North and so on. And, and as you point out, we have to think when and where such um, differences matter. Now, there might be a tendency at some level to see everything as difference and to dismiss the role of global forces um, which um, push for similarity, or again, in the opposite direction, seeing everything as more or less the same. And of course, things tend to be more complex than that. And very often we need to, to account for both these forces of similarity and difference at one and the same time. So while an easy answer would be that children from socioeconomic backgrounds are limited in exercising their participation rights, mm -hmm we need to think what that kind of response implies. Are we referring, for instance, to opportunities um, to be part of their school councils and participate in decision-making? Um, where those opportunities exist, there might be an obvious exclusion of children from lower, let's say, socioeconomic backgrounds, especially if we're talking about children's participation um, as um, a right um, granted to them by um, an adult um, uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, he, he we're talking about more um, collective forms of participation um, um, that children sometimes engage in, for example, in the social and economic lives of um, their communities, which um, is the case with um, a significant number of children in the global south, then that kind um, of assessment um, might no longer apply. Um, some, some scholars um, in childhood studies have addressed this question. Uh, Michael Vines is somebody that comes to mind. Um, he talked about this issue, arguing that um, uh, the Western frame of um, participation does not apply to many contexts um, in the global south where children 
collectively participate in the social and economic uh, lives of their communities compared to their um, counterparts in the most in the more um, uh, affluent, let's say, West. Um, so this is um, a very important point, I think, because uh, what Wyness and others are saying is that we need to move past our notions of participation as merely the child's opportunity to participate through her voice, um, mm -hmm. which is a typical form of participation in the West. We have all been involved with these kinds of initiatives. Um, to also include more material forms of participation, which are more prevalent perhaps in the global South. Um, again, the example will be here, um, participating in child work. So we need to think not just about the more formal and controlled forms of participation, which happen um, in institutional uh, spaces, such as uh, schools, for instance, this is the most typical space. Uh -huh. um, by well-intentioned uh, adults, uh, um, again, typical forms of participation in the West, but um, uh, uh, also open up and consider more social and material forms of participation um, of children, which is also participation, but of a different kind that we see more um, in the um, global south. So again, we need to be, I think, aware of how socioeconomic background or cultural difference, um, uh, and here um, by cultural difference, I mean um, cultures where children are by their very status as mm -hmm. children excluded from participating in aspects of life and, and decisions which affect them. And there's plenty of examples from around the world, how that limits certain groups of children from participating. And, and this is a very real and, and consequential reality, I think, um, but also avoid the temptation to equate participation with simplistic and, and Eurocentric notions of what an authentic or real participation experience for a child would be or, or should be. Now, having said that, uh, of course, we also need to acknowledge that it is an issue which we need to attend to at a global level because like other groups, children are also quite often um, constrained uh, uh, in their ability to participate in life processes um, which um, have consequences for their lives. Um, now, in the context of research, because that's kind of our interest today in this podcast, um, um, as childhood researchers, we need to be um, even more aware, I think, of those differences and tensions. Differences, yeah. And, and be critical about our own role in producing particular forms of knowledge. So we always need to ask who we are including, who we are excluding from research, and what the consequences of these inclusions and exclusions um, might be. Uh, so this is just my kind of uh, more general response to your question, but we can follow up <laughs> later on with other other more detailed uh, uh, Thank responses. You, 
as you indicated, it's an open concept. You also open um, many different aspects uh, in front of us, such as uh, the scale matters um, from school, from, from families to school, to um, a expanded uh, children community, so to say. There are many uh, different ways to participate in process, not only decision-making, as you indicated. Um, but I think it's, it's also about um, having a vo voice um, of children. So um, when I um, said to you that uh, unequal access, um, I think I meant something like that. We children um, have uh, opportunities, uh, possibilities to uh, raise their voices, um, mention about their uh, issues in uh, the world they face. And also in our uh, previous conversation, I asked you something about those kind of hierarchies uh, among groups, as you may remember. Um, in, it was more about, uh, you, you know, Greta Thunberg, the public figures. Uh, and then I, I think I also tried to um, open another perspective about unequal conditions um, of children, uh, children's uh, different experiences, something like that. So. Um, it, it was my little experience. Um, I would like to mention about uh, it very briefly. Um, I sometimes may find risky conditions between children's participations, level differences, uh, let's say. Um, because in Turkey, uh, we have recently had uh, crucial experiences in children's participation. We are even trying to lead uh, children to become uh, actors in policymaking processes. And it's, it's quite difficult, you may guess, uh, because we we have, um, let's say, human rights crisis um, in the country uh, where I live. So um, to, let's say, empower children might become more difficult um, because we, we don't have uh, such power to have uh, our own words um, because of the circumstances. Anyway, um, nowadays we have also been uh, trying to conduct uh, a project, uh, for instance, about uh, child rights and children's participation. However, I sometimes notice that generally middle class or upper middle class children from prestigious private schools, uh, colleges, they may have more chance to play uh, active roles in former councils, um, as you indicated, school councils or something more expanded that um, all children um, have access, but they can't uh, become the active actors in such groups because of the not, not hierarchy, but the differences, let's say, all those um, socioeconomic, social uh, background differences. They, uh, middle class, upper class children, may talk like an adult um, in an adultist way, um, with an adultist voice rather than a child. And their capability to access uh, matters, I think, the experience and knowledge uh, create such differences uh, among children, just like among other human beings, for sure. Mm -hmm. So do you have any experiences like that deriving from uh, inequalities of children uh, to their access to participation? And my, my, my uh, essential question is something like that. How can unpowerful ones, so to say, uh, subaltern, uh, a black girl in US, a Syrian refugee in Turkey, etc., those kind of uh, subaltern, let's say, um, how can unpowerful ones increase their capabilities to express themselves? And it's, I think children's participation is kind of adult responsibility. We are not actors, but we are responsible mentors of uh, child participation process. 
how can a researcher become efficient in the face of such uh, inequalities, such uh, challenges we just face in fieldwork, let's say? So it's a complicated question. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to summarize all the things. To it, let me see how I can uh, respond as, as uh, productively as I can. Now, again, I mean, your questions go to the heart of the issue, especially if we're talking about um, children's uh, participation in the research. And, and yes, there are many cases in our work, uh, especially when we work with um, underprivileged um, children, when it is very easy to exclude them from um, mm -hmm. a research study. Now, if you work in a, in a school setting, for example, and you're trying to uh, uh, recruit children for a research study and you're asking teachers, uh, for instance, to help you do that, um, it is very easy to go with children who are um, favored by teachers because uh, they're good students or particularly eloquent and so on and so forth. Uh, and it is, of course, much easier for you as a researcher mm -hmm. to, to work. on nice kids. <laughs> yeah, you can work with uh, such uh, a group of children. You can easily talk to them. They will share with you their thoughts on the issue you're studying. They might cooperate more smoothly um, with the whole process of your research. Um, because our conditions of life allow them um, to do that. Um, and of course, you will be able to, to collect the necessary data for your project, uh, especially if these are verbal data from interviews, uh, focus group discussions, and so on. I mean, we've all have had experiences where re research goes um, relatively smoothly. Um, but again, I mean, this is something to reflect on why um, is... Uh, a more inclusive form of uh, participatory research um, uh, challenge. So to avoid this temptation, I think requires a lot of sensitivity, a lot of awareness, and, and of course, um, the critical ability, I would say, to, to discern differences and be inclusive, even when being inclusive is not easy or straightforward. And this is where I think we have responsibility as researchers. Um, in a recent book, we've been discussing this previously, um, um, that I wrote, I, I talk about our disclosures in childhood mm -hmm. research, trying to make the point that our choices, including our theoretical and methodological uh, choices, come uh, with the responsibility attached to them. They might facilitate the inclusion of certain children, for instance, and on the contrary, they might facilitate the exclusion of others. Now, if you opt for a um, voice-based approach um, to generating data, collecting data, uh, you might end up excluding children who, for um, whatever reason, do not meet that kind of expectation. They might be too young, mm -hmm. too shy. They might not be used to expressing the themselves to strangers. Uh, I mean, you can think of many, many possibilities here. And, and so the underprivileged here might be left out if we simply opt for those uh, who might have all these characteristics and are obvious participants um, for our um, work. And the key question, of course, here is um, what do we represent with our work, um, mm -hmm. with our disclosures, um, who do we represent? Who do we leave out? How is our understanding limited by those um, 
exclusions, let's say, and so on. That would be kind of my way of thinking about mm-hmm. this, this, this challenge um, that we are often faced with when working, especially with underprivileged How can persons. we realize so, our responsibility? <clears throat> yes. So um, you mentioned about those silences, and now I think we can talk about methodologies at this point. Um, in your works, you remind us of a, a non-speaking or the child, the younger uh, child, the children, for instance, or you, as you indicated, um, the child just um, may not uh, may may choose not to speak. Um, so, and I, as far. Um, As I know from feminist methodology, silence is as necessary as words. Um, and while remembering Spivak's uh, well-known article with this famous question as to its title, can the subaltern speak? I also realized the nuance between the sound, voice, even noise, and the human being uh, has a voice while the animal has only sound, identifying uh, women as silent groups or describing young children in particular as silent or nonverbal uh, groups, etc. There are many intersections between feminist studies, childhood studies, even uh, animal or environmental studies nowadays. It may constitute uh, the theoretical parts, uh, but let's turn our face to a methodological approach and um, how researchers um, take this role, take this responsibility uh, in the face of such challenges. What kind of methods can be used to overcome the limits of voices? Um, what would you like to say more about these limits of children's voices? Um, perhaps you can open several intersections uh, like I, I indicated about feminist studies um, or such other um, fields, not only childhood studies. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, you brought up a lot of interesting ideas, uh, Suran, and, and I'm not sure I can do justice to to their depth and uh, and complexity. Um, but we can perhaps reflect a little more on, on this idea of the limits of voices and, and children's voices in particular that... Um, that um, you refer to. Now, at one level, um, I think, to draw attention to to the limits of children's voices, which is something I've been thinking about for for a long time, um, is to suggest that we can't take, we cannot take voice to be an unproblematic uh, means, uh, an unproblematic way for understanding children and their worlds. Um, if it was that straightforward, then we could rest assured that we have done our part. Um, in fact, childhood studies um, and uh, many of us have been doing this for quite a while and we have accumulated quite a bit of understanding about children's lives and worlds based on voice um, uh, research with children. And of course, when as a field you are trying to make a point and to show that children, um, for instance, have voices, have points of view, have the ability to reflect on their lives and so on, um, as, as, as childhood studies has been trying to show during the last uh, 30 or so years, three, four decades now, you can easily get carried out um, or carried away uh, and, and valorize children's voices and end up using them um, uncritically. Now, this could mean, for instance, taking them 
out of context, removing them from um, uh, the inter interactional context in which they take uh, shape and form, uh, treating them as um, authentic and true rather than the outcome of a process through which meaning is created and negotiated between ourselves uh, as researchers and children as participants, um, or ignoring the ideological context um, on which children draw on um, to frame their understandings um, of the world, and so on and, and so forth. So to extract a quote by a child from an interview to illustrate an argument you're trying to make can have its limits, especially if you ignore this larger um, dynamic, which is necessary to take into account if you are to produce critical knowledge through voice um, uh, research. So to avoid this temptation, uh, today we're talking a lot about temptations that we have as researchers, but to avoid this temptation of equity, children's voices with some kind of essence, um, it is important, I think, to keep reflecting mm -hmm. on our own knowledge practices, our knowledge practices as researchers, mm -hmm. and the means through which children's voices are produced in our um, uh, research. Now, you also mentioned visual methods, uh, use of drawings, uh, mm -hmm. videos, photos, etc., as another way of accessing um, what we could um, call voice. And yes, um, I think it is productive to experiment. I think it's a good idea to experiment with other methods which might offer us something new and different than a more conventional voice-based um, uh, approach like uh, an interview, for instance. Now, each method um, is a form of intervention. And as a form of intervention in a child's life, it can potentially have a different effect on the kind of knowledge that we end up producing. And there are certainly also cases when we need to experiment in this way to avoid excluding children from our research, to go back to our earlier discussion. Mm -hmm. Because let's say a verbal exchange might not be possible or, or, or maybe it would yield limited insight because of... Uh, age or because a child is shy, as we said, or any other reason which makes um, the more traditional kind of voice research um, unproductive. But again, I would insist that even if we switch to a different method, a visual method, for example, um, we're still faced with the problems and challenges of representing children's voices and worlds. Because at the end of the day, we're still making decisions as to what to include, what to exclude, how to frame it, and so on and so forth. In other words, there's bound to be limits to children's voices, and that is okay. We need to acknowledge them, to acknowledge these mm -hmm. limits, and work with them productively to produce the kind of knowledge that is ethical and critical. I, I think that that would be the bottom line for me, not necessarily to argue that, you know, we should overcome the limits of children's voices, which might be impossible at the end of the day, um, which is not to say that we shouldn't work around some of the challenges and, mm -hmm. and problems that we face in that kind of uh, research. But we can try at least. <laughs> and while asking such questions, um, 
I need to say that I have had that kind of motivation uh, from your works. For instance, in this disclosing childhoods, um, you mentioned about the other things um, referring to actor network um, theory. It was quite uh, inspiring for me. And you also uh, write about reflexivity. Um, and I'm sure you must have an uh, inclusive uh, perspective as an anthropologist. The relationship between the researcher and researching subjects is uh, significant for sure. Um, but we know even big children, when we talk about uh, children as researchers, uh, even the older ones, uh, the literate ones, um, do not read um, such nonfiction texts, academic texts uh, we just produced. They, they can't access uh, the research reports, uh, for example. So I would like to learn uh, what you think about whether children become the researcher themselves or not, because I think that's, um, you know, such a powerful word uh, to mention about them as researchers should they become the researchers themselves or can they because the research area um, also belongs to the adult world if children do the whole thing then shall we change the structures of academia now i'm asking a big question again i think but what yeah. do you think about that do you think the academic world can become as flexible to include the worlds of children the worlds of their drawings, their, uh, you know, more, more colorful uh, things, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is an important question, and it is not so much a new question for childhood studies, uh, mm -hmm. but because our understandings of what research is, um, and as well as what kind of knowledge is legitimate for research purposes, um, uh, uh, it's not a uniform one, it can vary considerably, uh, depending on who you talk to. Yeah, it is not, I think, an issue which can be easily resolved or cleared. There have been debates um, in journals and so on uh, uh, about this um, is issue, um, uh, one uh, actually quite recently in childhood. And now, to think through this, I would start with the assumption that children have a right, like adults mm -hmm. to produce knowledge themselves and here i mean so-called scientific knowledge mm -hmm. um comfortable with the term scientific knowledge here but let's let's just <coughs> that. they are not um children are not or should not just be consumers of knowledge because of their status as children mm -hmm. so that's my uh, kind of fundamental uh, starting point. Now, as, as you point out, the research seems to be mainly in the realm of adult activity. And most often, you are expected to be well trained in research um, in order to legitimately engage in research. So you're asking if children can do that or if they should do that. And some childhood study scholars who have been actively involved. Um, in helping and supporting children um, to engage in research, um, have argued that this is possible, provided, of course, there is that necessary support for children to do that. Um, children, like adults, can learn some basic skills that allow them to carry out research and do that quite well. 
um, Mary Kellett's work with um, uh, young children mm -hmm. um, is a very good example of how this can be done and done well. Um, of course, you cannot expect a five-year-old to design and carry out a research project the same way a 16-year-old would. So there are obviously some developmental um, limitations we need to um, account for. But nevertheless, children, given their status as children, can have a great advantage in some cases because their status gives, their status gives them access and insights, potentially insights, that might not be open to adult mm -hmm. researchers. So this can mean that children are able to produce a kind of knowledge which adults might not be able to produce because of their insider status and their insider perspective. But um, it is also a way through which, and this again has been discussed quite a bit, um, a way through which children can be empowered to learn about the world and analyze their worlds, to build, build up their um, uh, self-confidence, to impact their communities and, and so on. So it is possible that children get involved or wish to get involved in research for reasons that might differ from those of adults. And we need to account for that as well. They might be interested in learning about the world through research or in potentially um, transforming some aspect of their world, which is more typical when children are involved in action research, for uh, example. In other words, they might not be interested in, in scholarly production of knowledge, um, in publishing journal articles, <laughs> that academics are interested in, um, uh, but have other motivations. Um, now, to go back, though, to the substance of your question, um, my own position would be that children can definitely participate in research. And in some cases, where the necessary support and infrastructure exist, they can play even a primary role in research and can design and lead their own projects. Mm -hmm. But like other scorers, I would be careful to hold this uh, as an expectation because if we set the same standards as we set for adult research, in the case of children, we might actually setting them up for failure. Now, it is clearly not the same to have a PhD and have read and practiced research for a long time as it is to be a child who is interested and wants to participate in research. There, there is clearly a difference there. And, and here is where I think the question of what counts as research and what counts as legi legitimate knowledge um, um, becomes crucial. Now, if you can only see research as something which is done in a particular, um, let's say systematic way, where, um, I don't know, rigor, validity, reliability, all these things we'll talk about when we teach research methods. Um, mm -hmm. I was in a class last night, and that's what we're talking about with uh, students in early childhood uh, education. And all these other, yes, all the, <laughs> exactly. All these indicators of, let's say, high quality research that um, research community is preoccupied with, then chances are that children's involvement in the research and their outcomes will fall short. 
Okay. But if you see children's, because this require a lot more experience, a lot more training and professional training and practice. But if you see children's participation in research as a means through which a different kind of knowledge and understanding can be produced, and also, as we said earlier, as a way through which children um, themselves can benefit because it helps their self-confidence, because mm -hmm. it helps them get you know, involved with their uh, local communities and so on, then, then this kind of research is not only possible, but also very valuable. Um, and, and one um, last point here, um, I think that another way to think about this issue is in terms of intergenerational collaboration. Um, children and adults can work together to produce valuable knowledge through research. The challenge there, of course, is for adults to avoid taking over and hijacking the process. Now, to the extent that this is possible, um, I think it can be generative, especially because you no longer focus your attention in trying to prove who knows what and who is capable of doing what and explore instead the possibility of working um, together collaboratively with, um, I don't know, mutuality, a common understanding, um, understanding that um, each party has different skills and abilities um, and knowledge and experience. Um, uh, you understand this um, in a kind of a more democratic way, which um, acknowledges the lack of self-sufficiency. Nobody knows everything and nobody can do everything. And the reality or the realities in the plural uh, of our interdependence as human beings on each other. Um, so this kind of research, again, to the extent that it strives to overcome some of the challenges which are, are um, let's say, inherent in, in the power differences between children and adults can be quite productive in, in my view and from my understanding. So in other words, I would, I would see collaborative work with children as being more in line with the emerging theoretical work on relationality and interdependence, and ultimately a more realistic and useful approach than insisting that, you know, children should do their own projects and design them from scratch and so on and so forth. Thank you so much for this valuable um, and deep uh, response to my um, big question. Yeah. Uh, especially that intergenerational collaboration part uh, is quite important, I think, because perhaps we as academics, as adult uh, people should leave that empowerment part uh, to children themselves. They can uh, empower each other, they can share things, uh, they can carry the experiences from perhaps uh, older ones to younger ones. That kind of intergenerational um, collaboration between us and them as adults and children uh, may be rebuilt uh, among children, I think. So perhaps um, about younger children, um, we can, or let's say uh, older children, teenagers uh, perhaps can also um, search for um, what is beyond the language, what, what um, silence speaks. Maybe they can um, hear there's not only words, but also uh, silences, the, the pauses. 
So here at this point, I would like to ask you, um, could you explain to us how possible to make silence speak? What can we hear from uh, it? There are classifications as intentional or polite silence. We can add those kind of little pauses I mentioned, uh, gestures, body language, etc. the tone uh, perhaps. And what do you think um, about those uh, silence speaking? And are these uh, too analytical to interpret for us? Okay. Um, yeah, as I said earlier, we need to be critical about any claims to authenticity, irrespective of whether one talks about voice, um, as we discussed earlier, or the absence of voice, of an utterance, um, what we call um, often silence. Now, silence can be a very tricky thing to handle in research, pre precisely because it often expresses itself as an absence, or we could say, precisely because it does not express itself mm -hmm. in a way that we can easily recognize and make um, a sense of. So if you're used to analyzing, let's say text by coding, which a lot of us in qualitative research um, do, um, you will most likely not account for silence. Uh, so it requires that we develop better because it's not there, you don't see it. Um, in other words, it's not present in the form of uh, words and text. Mm -hmm. So it requires that I think that we develop better ways to do that. It might mean, for example, um, that we read entire text, uh, for instance, an entire interview, and not simply code and extract a segment from an interview and then look for the um, silences there. If you read the entire transcript, and now I'm discussing kind of a more practical way of, of thinking and doing that, uh, not the only way, but just an initial way to think about this complexity. Now, if you read the entire transcript, you might be able to see what is being said and what is not being said, for instance. Um, you might even choose to listen to an, an, an audio recording if you have the ability rather than read the transcript or read both the transcript and listen to the audio recording if, if, if you have it and try to understand how something was said, the expression, um, rather than simp simply what was said. And again, look for absences there, of, uh, look for silences. Um, it's even better, of course, if you have personally done the interview or the discussion mm -hmm. or the conversation with the child, because then you might be more aware, aware of, of these mm -hmm. silences. Um, again, we would need to experiment, I think, and develop better ways of finding and analyzing the absences and, 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 and silences in uh, research. And this, I think, is a challenge for um, scholars who feel they need to engage um, in this clearly difficult task of um, accounting for silences because they see it as an ethical um, imperative, as, a, as their ethical responsibility. Now, having said that, I would go a step further um, to suggest that not everything in research should or could be interpreted, and that would include silence. Um, there might be instances when we cannot make sense of silence, 
and we should avoid the temptation to do so. The world um, which unfolds in front of us cannot always be made sense of, and that is okay, I think. Um, a certain kind of humility, um, epistemic humility uh, uh, is sometimes, I think, necessary. And we should get more used to practicing that and allowing for that in our work. We don't have to understand everything, perhaps. But I think it's like parentheses. Sometimes uh, the knowledge there might be more important, um, more, more interesting and attractive to discover. Um, and you mentioned about the uh, researchers uh, being there, being uh, at the fieldwork uh, physically and experience all those um, process. Perhaps we can include uh, the fundamentals of uh, ethnographic studies or phenomenology um, as particular approach in social sciences here. Could you tell us a bit more um, about what is characteristic for childhood studies? Um, and can you mention about differences of um, anthropology or sociology of childhood through methodological approach? Um, childhood studies scholars, myself included, um, um, have been using all different kinds of methodological approaches um, over the years. I don't think there is a specific set of approaches that the field is um, bound to um, though, of course, somebody could argue that ethnographic approaches have been um, extensively used, um, uh, as well as, as we said earlier, voice-based approaches, especially um, interviews, have been widely used. Um, and in recent years, um, there has been, um, I would say, tremendous experimentation in the field with different methodological approaches and new methods um, for um, um, data generation um, that uh, people have um, developed based on their needs and the challenges they face um, <clears throat> when doing research with um, children. Now, uh, of course, anthropological and sociological uh, approaches tend to be um, overwhelmingly qualitative in childhood studies. Um, but I do not see any more sharp distinctions in methodological approaches, for instance, um, uh, between anthropologists and uh, sociologists. Um, I think we see a more eclectic, more careful and eclectic use of method, which uh, no longer follows um, so much disciplinary uh, boundaries or disciplinary um, guidelines or, mm -hmm. or, or philosophies, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, because childhood studies is a multidisciplinary field, and to some extent you could say also interdisciplinary field, um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in, this, in terms of interdisciplinarity, but it's certainly a multidisciplinary field. Um, it, um, it offers this opportunity for borrowing and experimentation, which is often guided by a common um, concern. I mean, we're all concerned about studying children and childhood. Um, so there is a common basis on which to experiment. Um, the challenge, I think, from now on is to develop approaches that allow us to study um, 
relationality, which uh, means that we need to rethink some of our current um, approaches and methods um, creatively and um, in ways that um, allow us to address the complexities, which a lot of these new theoretical approaches um, uh, that we are dealing with in childhood studies today make us aware of, um, as well as, as I would say, the empirical realities and, and complexities that we encounter when we do research. We see new things um, and we need to think of how we can go about productively um, addressing them. Um, and uh, precisely because a lot of problems we try to address um, through our research today are complex, they're not easy uh, issues um, and may require interdisciplinary approaches, we need to work with others to develop new methodological um, tools, let's say, which might in many ways escape um, our conventional understandings of method, uh, um, data, um, analysis, interpretation, and so on, all the things that we have been doing for uh, three or four decades now. No, different techniques um, are quite necessary. And as you said, um, all kind of um, interdisciplinary approach we had um, and such collaborations uh, are quite necessary to um, improve um, our methodology in childhood studies. And you sometimes draw attention to representation measures um, while uh, discussing visual methods, um, as I read from your works. Um, how can we overcome um, such problems we faced in field work to reflect children and young people's worlds, uh, meanings and values as clearly and directly? Um, mm. Is it possible to uh, provide that true collaboration? Perhaps you can uh, open those parts a little bit. Um, as much as I would um, like to offer a, a good or satisfactory answer, to your question, Saran, I, I do not think there is one. <laughs> now, of course, we need to keep trying uh, and we need to um, keep um, experimenting with different ways and methods of producing knowledge. And, and that is a good thing. Um, there are more informed, more nuanced ways of representing others, more ethical ways also that we can used to represent children's worlds and lives because such ways are, are more sensitive um, to the complexities of their lives and, and, and move past that temptation to re represent them in a, in a very simplistic, in a very quick, very crude way. Um, so the, there are better and more ethical ways to do that. And, and of course, I can go on and on about this. Um, so it is not that this is a futile effort, but we should also be aware that um, there is no single superior authentic representation of children's and young people's worlds. Um, all representation is mediated through us as researchers and through so many other lenses that make it impossible to claim um, objectivity of any sorts. 
So my, my answer would be that, yes, we can strive to have better representations of children in their worlds, uh, especially uh, more ethical representations. Mm -hmm. That would be my underlying motivation when I reflect in, uh, on, on the issue of representation. But let us also be mindful about the, the um, let's say, the situatedness, the partiality of the knowledge we produce. Um, we cannot escape that. And that is okay, provided we retain that critical ability to reflect on our positions and our role in producing um, knowledge. And it's, it also sounds like a reflection of diversity, diverse childhood, uh, all those various experiences mm -hmm. reflects to uh, the things, the methods uh, we have been using. It's also inspiring for me to listen to your words. And lastly, I wanted to ask you, um, how do you understand the role of methods in research with children? Can you reflect a bit on how we can think about methods critically in childhood research at last? Okay, I mean, this is a good question, at least in terms of continuing from where we left. Mm -hmm. to, to sum up the, <laughs> all those. Yeah, from, the, from the previous question, but also our earlier um, discussion. Now, my understanding of method might be a bit different than, than more conventional understandings of methods as, as tools for collecting data, which then allow you to represent somebody else's reality, let's say, as accurately as possible, uh, which is more typical um, of, of uh, conventional approaches to um, uh, the use of method and, and knowledge production. And of course, there the assumption is that you have to use the right method and use it properly. And, and that's how you arrive to uh, add a better or more complete or more objective representation of um, uh, of others, um, in our case, children. Now, my understanding of method is more in line with um, the thinking of scholars who see method as a, as a form of interference in knowledge production. Um, different methods um, may produce different realities. That's my kind of mm -hmm. assumption, my starting assumption. Again, they can tap into different aspects of children's lives and produce different kinds of knowledge and lead to different kinds of understandings. So uh, researchers are intervening in children's worlds through the choices they make to use one method as opposed to another. And through these choices they make, um, they produce the world in particular ways, in the sense that the choice of method means that certain forms of inclusions and certain forms of exclusion will have to take place. So as researchers, and I go back to that point that I raised earlier, we are responsible for the data we generate mm -hmm. and the realities we produce through the da data we generate. Uh, and more importantly, I think for the ethical and the political effects um, that our representations carry. So a set of interviews might produce a different um, reality with different ethical and political effects than an extended ethnographic engagement. You have somebody who goes out in the field and 
does a few interviews and comes back and offers a particular representation of children's worlds. Um, that might be quite a different kind of knowledge than that produced uh, by an extended uh, fieldwork-based uh, study of that same group. Um, and of course, it is not always up to us um, what we end up um, doing. I mean, we have limitations, time limitations, funding mm -hmm. limitations. You know, you might want to do an ethnographic and extend ethnographic study, but you don't have the time or the money uh, or the funding or whatever it is that you need. <laughs> um, but in any case, at the end of the day, we are both responsible and accountable, I think, for our knowledge productions. Sure. And if nothing else, if nothing else, we need to be reflective about our choices. And this is, of course, a much a much shorter response that I can offer in relation to a much bigger issue that we could discuss um, in relation to methods and, and knowledge production. So I will stop here. Well, I think it's um, it, it just opens a, a new perspective for us to rebuild um, the relationship between child participation. They are building um, a community or let's say a community involvement uh, might become a conclusion of um, researching um, with, with children. And it's, 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 well, it's um, great to listen to your uh, fascinating ideas um, about researching with children, um, intergenerational collaboration, so many concepts um, you just uh, bring here, uh, like the hope that we um, talked about um, childhood activism, um, young generations uh, advantages um, before in our uh, previous episodes. So um, it's great to uh, listen to you because of your um, pointing out um, new different perspectives for me. You have, let's say, made my mind um, reconstruct methodology in childhood studies, uh, not only in critical way, but uh, within uh, other new perspectives, uh, trajectories. Um, and I think that's only um, the conclusion of such uh, great conversations. Uh, thank you so much for uh, these inspiring words um, and ideas, um, accepting my uh, invitation and uh, being with me here for this very nice conversation. Thank you so much, Saran. I, I really enjoyed our talk this morning. <laughs> Hope to see you again, Cipiros.